I introduced uh, Aaron to you uh, a moment ago. Um, he's going to come share the word with us in, in just a second. But I wanted to say that one of the reasons that Aaron and I were having coffee a month ago, and uh, I'm just so impressed with uh, not only his ministry to women coming out of the sex trade, but we had a good conversation about uh, why there's a sex trade in the first place. And um, the reason is because of men. And uh, with this being uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month, I, I asked Aaron if he would come share a word with us um, about what, what it means to be a good, a good man, a good person, a good follower of Christ. He's, he's going to do what he's going to do. But I, I, would you once again welcome Aaron as he comes to share God's word with us? Thank you, church. Is this on? Can you hear me? It's a real privilege to be here. I really sense the presence of God here. There is something very, um, very sweet, very authentic about your fellowship, about the pastoral ministry that um, Chris has here. Um, I'm just really struck by that. I get to visit a lot of churches, fortunately. We, we partner with churches all over the county to provide the services that we do at a Getty Refuge to those that are um, abused and the most unfortunate in our society. But it is an honor to be present with God's children and my brothers and sisters. So when uh, Chris and I were talking about this and talking about all issues dark and seedy like sex trafficking and prostitution and what in the world to do about that, um, he was just so gracious to, to say, well, why don't you come and, and share with our church about that? But would you please preach the word first? And to which I am heartily um, uh, uh, willing and available to do that. I really love to, to connect the dots because literally we can't love as Jesus loved unless we're like Jesus. And to be like Jesus, we have to know who he is. And to know who he is, we have to really study his word, but we also need to receive his spirit. And then those two things is quite the rub, to know him and to receive him. So I want to turn to John chapter 8 and verse, uh, verses 2 through 11. Uh, as our primary text today, it's a very well-known story, but it really touches this and it, uh, this issue, and it is the classic story of the woman caught in adultery. And we're going to make, we're going to, we're going to glean some points from this, and we're going to find out really what the Lord is like. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And at once, and once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. 
crazy thing about this is it wasn't about the woman. It was about Jesus. This is an ongoing argument um, that had been festering for quite some time with Jesus. If you go back to John chapter 5, you'll see that Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. um, And the crime was he did that on a Sabbath. And that was against the religious law. So the Pharisees made an issue about that and they began to persecute Jesus, even though they were shamed and embarrassed by the obvious healing and actually the logic and the faith of the man who had been healed, but he'd been crippled for 38 years. It continued in John chapter 17 and Jesus pointed out to them, um, I mean, sorry, John chapter 7, uh, verse 19, and Jesus kind of picks up this argument with them again. He said, um, has not Moses given you the law? Because, of course, they're experts in the law, and they're judging everybody else by the law. Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work. He's talking about this miracle in John chapter 5. I did one work, and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And so Jesus takes up this argument again, pointing out their hypocrisy to which they are infuriated. Um, Here's the strategy of the pharisaical mind. And we all have to be careful about this because we are particularly subject to it at times. If you can't stop Jesus from doing, and of course he pointed out he was doing what the Father was doing. If you can't stop him from doing what the Father was doing, then you can slander him. And if you can't win the slander argument, well, then you can try to kill him. And of course, if you can't kill him, at least you can demonize him. This is their strategy. And if you can't demonize him, well, maybe you can arrest him and just tie him up in court. And if you can't tie him up in court, you can always blame a woman. And this has an incredible strategy um, of the pharisaical mind. Um, Men are often trying to blame women for their own sin. And I want to point out a, um, a story in the Old Testament that, frankly, if I was writing the Bible and I wanted to kind of highlight the, uh, uh, the moral excellence of my own religion and, and convince you uh, to, to buy into it, I certainly would have left this chapter out. And that is Genesis chapter 38. Have you ever heard of this story of Judah and Tamar? I don't know how many of your Bibles, yeah, you guys are pretty well versed in the Bible. You're nodding your heads. Most people don't know about it. Judah, one of the forefathers um, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, um, had a pretty bad chapter in his life. He separated his, from his family, moved to another place with a friend, married a Canaanite woman, had three sons, and then found a Canaanite uh, woman for his oldest son. His oldest son was wicked. They had no children. God actually killed his oldest son. Something was terribly wrong there. The second son, under uh, common law obligation, was to raise children for his, on his brother's behalf. 
So he married Tamar. Um, he refused to, pull, to, to do that, and so he died as well. The third son was not yet of marrying age, and so the common law was is that he was to, to grow up when he was old enough to marry Tamar and have children uh, by her to continue the family line and the heritage. But Judah did not allow that to happen, and he sent Tamar home to live with her family. During that period of time, and it was some years, his wife died as well. One day, he and his friend were going and taking their sheep to be sheared down at, at, at the town, and Tamar heard about it. Now, she had been slighted. Her, she was bound not to be married. She could not continue the family line. She could not have kids, and she felt like she was wronged by Judah. She disguised herself and sat at the gate, presumably to um, present herself as a prostitute. But we don't know that that was exactly her intent. But it was certainly Judah's presumption. So Judah goes into town. He sees this woman sitting there with her, her face covered, and he approaches her, and he literally says, let me come into you. What can I give you? He propositions her for sex. He treats her as a prostitute, and she complies. They make a deal. He didn't have payment, so he gave her um, his signet ring and a cord and a staff. It was kind of like, keep this until I can bring the payment. He had sex with her right away. He didn't even know who she was. Never ever uncovered her face. She was faceless. She was identifiable or unidentifiable. It didn't matter to him. Three months goes by. By the way, he tried to make good on the payment, but he couldn't find her again. She went back to her father's house. Gets around three months later that she's pregnant. Somebody sends word to Judah. This is a very embarrassing um, episode in his life. But he says, and I'm going to quote in uh, Genesis 38, in verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Judah said, bring her out and burn her to death. We're going to get back to that story in a minute. Men have a very convenient way of blaming women for their own sin. It's no different today, it just plays out a little bit differently. Actually, not a lot differently. And Jesus is actually confronting the same attitude in the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees who actually arranged this immoral act, this act of adultery. The man is not brought in. The law is very clear. In an adulterous situation like that, the man and woman both are to be stoned. They only bring the woman. Why? Because they conspired with the man. And they did this not because they are concerned about the, the moral degradation of the Jewish nation or the, the blight that this might have on, on the influence of the society. They are simply trying to make a point and a case with Jesus, and they're throwing Jesus into the middle of a moral conflict, and they're willing to kill a woman to make the point. But it's not much different today. Jesus' response is absolutely phenomenal. So you've got to understand the whole setup and the whole attitude with this entire thing, and then realize that they're bringing this to the Lord, the Lord himself, and his response at first is silence. 
So he's confronted in the middle of a teaching situation in the temple and thrown down into the middle of this conflict. And their intent is to basically say, look, if you obviously break with the Mosaic law, we've got grounds to go ahead and arrest you. And their intent, of course, was to kill him. Now, they eventually pulled that off, but not until Jesus allowed it. And his response is silence. He bends down and he writes on the ground. And here's what I get from this, is the incredible maturity and self-control of Jesus Christ. He paused, he focused, and he listened. And it begs the question for you and me, how do you handle moral conflict? How do you handle the tension between the law and grace? How do you handle being caught between a rock and a hard place? So Jesus, at their pestering, and they're, they're continuing to question and threaten, and they're just ramping this whole thing up into, a, into a, a, a fever pitch. And he says this, because they actually put it upon him to actually make the decision. You make the call, but it's very consequential call. And he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And the inference is, is that, that if you have never sinned, then you, then you come out here, stand in front, you be the first to cast the stone at her. So it becomes very personal about their particular sin. Um, and it is a game changer. That whole statement absolutely changes how we look at moral failure and how we look at the love and the grace of God. He responded in the spirit by redirecting the group focus from the guilt of the accused to the guilt of the accusers. It's not really that people um, are not guilty of sin because they clearly are. You and I clearly are. But in the kingdom of Christ, no one is innocent enough to execute judgment on anyone else. We simply cannot eradicate sin by bringing harsh consequences for sin. Not from the place of uh, sin-infested hypocrisy and bias. <clears throat> Paul expresses this very clearly in Romans chapter 2 um, and verse 1, if I can find it. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Um, it's so clear. The challenge that Jesus presents to the accusers in the crowd is that if anyone among you, I mean, he points the finger almost like, I dare you. Like, really? I mean, you're going to stare Jesus in the face and go, come on, man, what are you going to do? Like Moses said, said stone her, what are you going to say? And he's like, really? You're going you're gonna to do that with me? You're, you're going to go toe-to-toe, eye-to-eye with me on moral perfection? I dare you. And then he did the most amazing thing. He was silent again. He just threw out the criteria and he bent down again and wrote on the ground. And here's the thing I get out of that is that Jesus actually trusts the Holy Spirit. And that's very convicting. He actually trusts the Holy Spirit to bring conviction. And the old men began to walk away quietly. 
And the young men slowly felt alone in their self-righteousness, and they excused themselves too. And here's the beautiful part of the conversation is that he turns to the woman who was accused, obviously probably shaking in fear, totally embarrassed and shamed. And he says, where are they? Has nobody condemned you? And of course she says, no one, Lord. Now she calls him Lord because he's in control. And she sees the power and the authority in Jesus' name and in Jesus' presence. You see, the thing is, is when Jesus saves you, you're going to know it. When Jesus saves you, from fearful consequences that evaporate in front of you and the screaming, angry voices cease, you know that Jesus just stepped in the middle and saved you. It's not always in a crowd situation like that, but it is important that we acknowledge that salvation, that we see the tangible expression of him protecting you. He never intends intended for this woman to pay for her sins because he was about to pay for her sins. And he doesn't intend for you to pay for your sins because he already has paid for your sins. Our trust in Jesus is not built on myths or clever ideas, but on actual deliverance from forces of judgment and harm. And sometimes it's not other people who accuse us, it's the voices in our own head. Sometimes it's not stones that threaten to harm us, It is the chemicals or the images that we crave and we serve and we sacrifice to. Sometimes we're our own worst enemy in terms of accusation. The next thing he says is absolutely life-changing. He says, neither do I condemn you. He's the only one with the authority and the right to judge us, and he does not. This is true forgiveness. What Jesus ministered to the woman in the moment was absolute and true forgiveness. It's the sweetest, most life-changing words in the world coming from Jesus himself. And so that we begin to understand what Jesus is like. And when he sets us free, we are truly, truly free. In fact, it's reflected in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're absolutely freed from the um, declaration of condemnation. There is no such thing in him. And he goes on in the chapter to say, if God is for us, who then can separate us from the love of God? And it brings it in great detail there. Um, Jesus not only saves us from the judgment of sin, he just forgives us, period. We do not have to carry shame anymore, and there is nothing between Jesus and you, or Jesus and anyone else, when we hear his words. He, the, the last thing he says is, go and from now on sin no more. This is true empowerment. His word is the command which makes our repentance possible. We really can't even turn. I think you probably all know this, but repentance is the changing of your mind and changing of behavior. It's taking, it's going from this direction to this direction, but you actually need his word to pull that off. We can only correct our behavior for a little while, but we can't do it ultimately. All exhortation to moral correction and behavioral change in the kingdom of God or under the authority of Christ, is predicated upon the new life and power he gives us in the Spirit. This is, Paul speaks about this in 2 Timothy 1, 7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. 
Folks, power, love, and self-control is not possible without God in us by his spirit, and it is completely different than fear. Jesus' exhortation to the woman gives her the hope and the power she needs to walk in it, and it comes after the unconditional love and forgiveness that he ministers to her. Our leaning into his forgiveness and response to his word becomes our righteousness. It's not that I decided to be good. It's that he gave me a command to be good. And he freed me from all condemnation before that command. That is an incredible pattern that we need to understand. And just to go back to the story with Judah, it is something that Judah understood. Judah was a kind of despicable guy. He had a major character flaw, but he came, became one of the, the, the greatest of the 12, uh, the fathers of the 12 tribes. And in fact, it is from him that Christ comes to us as well, at least in the, in the human lineage. In verse 26 of Genesis 30, it says, then when, when um, excuse me, Tamar sent these things that he had given her in promise, the promise for payment, she brought these things forth to him and said, the one I'm pregnant by is the one who owns these. So she brought the signet ring out and the cord and the staff. And he says this, Ju Judah identified them and said, quote, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again. Judah turned in that one verse in scripture and he, he turned from, let's burn her to death because she's the immoral woman, immoral, pregnated, impregnated by him, to she is more righteous than I. And the, the strange connection with John chapter 8 is that this is the same opportunity that Jesus is giving the scribes and the Pharisees. He's giving them this moment to turn like Judah. And he is protecting this woman, not that she's not guilty, but they're not worthy to, to condemn. Jesus says in his prayer in John chapter 17 that, um, I'm going to have to read this because I don't want to get it wrong. I was reading it this week and it, it, just, it just floors me. There's so much in this. But this struck me as I was thinking about what, what we were going to talk about today. Jesus, in, in the middle of this prayer, he says, they, his disciples, are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, he's talking about not only the disciples that he sent, literally the, the 12 guys, but he's talking about everyone that would believe in the word, uh, or everyone that would believe in him by their word, which 2,000 years later is you and I. We are in that lineage, and, God, and Jesus is praying to God, don't take them out of the world, leave them in the world, sanctify them with truth, and as you sent me, as the Father sent Jesus, so he is sending us. Now, that I say to try to connect the dots. Look at the heart of Jesus, and look what he's actually commissioning us to do. And with that, I want to just give us some description to the ministry of Engedi Refuge and look at 
what it means at this time in our world to stand in Jesus's place between the woman in the sex industry or the woman caught in the act of adultery, however you want to say it, caught in the immoral lifestyle, caught in the sex trade, and the men who would blame and shame and criticize them. You see, men continue to this day to tempt them and coerce them and manipulate them and even force them into prostitution and then hate them and blame them and shame them and criminalize them and spit on them and even kill them. And the same thing is happening today. Um, I didn't always see it that way. And we can put those slides up if you want. Um, You can go ahead and yeah, that's That's our tagline. Yeah, let's just go to that one right there. Um, I didn't really understand all that was going on. Um, in fact, I never really thought about it in prostitution. Uh, Twelve years ago, God broke my heart uh, and my wife as well for the condition of prostituted persons or sex trafficked persons in the United States. Actually, it's around the world, but the Lord convicted us that that there are people right under our right under our nose, people in the United States that are caught in the worst kind of abuse, the worst kind of shame and blame for that abuse, and their lives are being utterly destroyed by the hundreds of thousands. Let me give you an example. Val Ritchie, now go back to the other slide, thanks. Um, who was a senior prosecuting attorney in, in, King, in King County in Seattle for many years. Um, did a lot of research and he, he did a lot of, made a lot of changes in terms of law enforcement's uh, response to prostitution and to sex trafficking. He had firsthand knowledge of all the incidents and everything that was going on on the internet and in brothels and in illegal massage parlors and whatnot. He estimated that 40,000 men were seeking to purchase someone for sex. Every day, every day in King County. And that um, there were about 3,500 prostituted persons or sex trafficked persons in Seattle every day. About 500 of those are minors. Um, Let's go to the next one. What you probably don't realize is that the average age into entry when someone starts or attempts or coerces uh, forces someone into prostitution, the, their average age is about 12 to 13. So we're talking about 7th and 8th grade girls. I don't know if any of you have 7th and 8th grade girls or know of any. That's very young. Their experience is that they are, I don't know a nice way to say it, and I know I'm in church, I know I'm with my brothers and sisters in Christ, but they sexually service men 10 to 15 times a day. 13-year-old girls. That usually doesn't stop. That trajectory doesn't stop on its own unless somebody um, is uh, rescued in some sort of way uh, or often they're killed. Sometimes they commit suicide. The damage that they sustain to their bodies and souls is difficult to imagine and understand. But they're in desperate need of safety and help Um, By the time they get to adulthood and they're seeking some kind of help, and usually that happens after 18, 19, 20 years old, they realize they're they're not the youngest, most 
valuable thing. They've probably been abused about 20,000 times. As a result, they experience what psychologists call complex trauma to the degree that, say, prisoners of war and torture victims would have suffered. In fact, psychologists call it much worse, about twice as worse as bad in terms of the effect psychologically on their heart and soul. So let's go to the next slide. What, um, and, and Getty Refuge provides is restorative aftercare for these victims. Um, women tell us all the time, um, the women that we serve, they talk about the desperation and the despair and the hopelessness that they experience. Um, and when they're out, what they call in the life, but when they're out on the street, they don't realize that anybody cares. They don't realize that there's resources. Uh, they're told that they're not. They're told that the police uh, are not their friend, but their enemy, and that nobody cares about them, that they're just trash, and they're just treated like a thing. Um, we want to show them the love of God. That's what we do. What we do is provide what they need to feel safe and to experience God's love. And we can go to the next slide as well. This is how we do it. It's really very simple, but it's providing safe housing and then a restorative program. We use a two-part model. We keep them safe in, in a safe house, and that's a, a secret location. And then we take them into what we call the learning center uh, Monday through Friday. They have about six hours a day. And then, of course, there's other uh, supplemental meetings in the evening. But we just shower them with love and acceptance and grace and we engage them in very therapeutic activities, both individually and in group. Um, we meet them where they're at and help them to build and rebuild their lives uh, in a safe environment, socially safe, emotionally safe, physically safe. Education is a big part of it. Lots of personal support. I don't have time to go into to all of it. But um, for us, it's, uh, we can go to the next slide too. Um, to try to bring this down, and I, I can't, I don't have time to preach these, but I'll tell you what's become uh, really key for us is what Jesus said about himself. When Jesus went into a synagogue at the beginning of his ministry, he quoted from Isaiah uh, 61 1, um, and basically identified that his mission was to, um, was to bring good news to the poor and comfort to the brokenhearted, or literally some versions say to bind up the brokenhearted, to really take the fragmented pieces of their heart and collect them and gather them and glue them and brace them together. And that is literally what we're doing. And also to proclaim freedom and, to, and, and release. This is like all components of our ministry. And what's really happening is that as we look at these ladies the way that Jesus does, like the woman caught in adultery, and we look and we commit ourselves to be like Jesus in a response that is not judgmental. How could we condemn them? How could we create consequence around this just to scare the snot out of everybody? But, but actually stand in the middle with Jesus between the accusing and the accused, between the abusers and the abused, we stand in the middle. And that's what we get to do. And in that process of us adopting that position socially and literally, we start to become like Jesus in the tension of that middle ground. And we're finding God just uh, <laughs> working on us, weeding out the pride in our heart 
weeding out the callousness of our heart. And we realize our life is only and ever only measured by Jesus himself. And so when we read about who, what he says and what he does, we, we see, am I becoming more like him or more like a Pharisee? And we, our aim is to become more like him. Let's go to this last slide. What we see is changed life. God is changing lives at Engedi Refuge, and we get a front row seat on transformation. Uh, this slide shows me baptizing uh, one of our residents. She's pretty um, special to me, and I, I can't tell you her name. Um, and I, this one doesn't show her face. We have to protect their anonymity uh, alive. We just can't, you know, get that out in public. But I've actually had the privilege of, like, baptizing nine of the ladies of the, of the 60, actually 62 now as of this week, um, that have come to Engedi Refuge. Um, they, almost 90% of them are giving their hearts to Christ, which is just phenomenal. Like, we didn't, like, guarantee that. And we're not pushing that in, in the sense. We are loving them well, and we offer them the gospel, but it is not a conditional thing. It's not like, you know, if you don't, you know, pray this prayer, you don't get fed. Not at all. We're here to love you, support you, bring all the safety around you, get you educated, get you counseled back on the... Uh, on the path of life that's healthy and productive for you. And by the way, God really loves you and they believe it because they feel it, because they know it's true. And they're like, man, I want, I want whatever you've got. So we have an incredible privilege of helping them walk in a journey of faith toward the Lord. And sometimes that is involved baptism, just like you guys were doing today. It's pretty cool. Um, so... Um, I want to just skip to the next one. Um, and then I'm just going to close with this. I know I'm probably over time. But um, what I love to do is just talk to our church partners about uh, how you can partner with us. And we are um, simply an extension of the body of Christ. We get to represent Jesus. But we're an extension of all the body. Many churches partner with us in Whatcom County, and we're basically an outpost of Christ followers that are touching the lives of prostituted women who feel like absolute trash and worth, worthless. And we need the prayers. We need constant prayer for the deliverance of the ladies that we serve and the stamina of the staff and the volunteers that serve with us. We need resources, financial, toilet paper, clothing, a whole host of things. And we need relationship. So we ask you, you know, as, um, as a church partner, to just consider whatever the Holy Spirit is, is speaking to you to help us. And today has just been a, a wonderful expression of that. I just, I love the relationship. I love the chance to communicate. I'm very thankful for the offering that you guys provided just to see the, the beauty of what God is doing here in this body is, um, is amazing. And I just hope that you will feel a camaraderie with us as well as maybe you get to hear me and, and hear our heart a little bit. But this is who we are. And we're right here in Whatcom County. Um, God has, has done an amazing work He's allowed us to successfully uh, help ladies restore. In fact, the success rate at Engedi Refuge is um, significantly higher than any other ministry of its kind in the United States. We know that because we're in relationship of some kind with other agencies. 
Um, that's not because my wife and I are super smart, but we are trying to walk faithfully and obediently, and God is actually faithful to his word, and we're just simply doing what we, th- we see Jesus do, and uh, he is, is blessing it in a lot of ways. So we, we love your partnership, and we appreciate your attention, and um, yeah, that's it. Yeah. <laughs>